But if you would, take out your Bible and turn to Nehemiah. So it's 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and then you have Ezra and Nehemiah is after that. And actually, it used to be one book. The Hebrews would read it, the Jews is one book, but we have a split into Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you would turn to Nehemiah. And let's pray. Father, I'd ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to all of our hearts once again and that your voice will be clear through the message you have today to speak to us about what it means to build a foundation in ministry. And I just thank you that you'll do that and speak clearly to us in Jesus' name. So let's read Nehemiah beginning in chapter 1, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 9. And it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the twentieth year as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Well, it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, I beg thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that you may hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, Well, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the earth, yet will I gather them from thence, and I will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. And, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man." For I was the king's cupbearer. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And then I was sore afraid. And I said unto the king, Well, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, it lies waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? And then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant hath found favor in thy sight, that you would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, Well, for how long shall thy journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, 
and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So I believe the Lord's given me a message for this church out of what we're looking at here in Nehemiah chapter 1 and in, into a little bit of chapter 2. But what I'd like to do just briefly is to just set the historical context. And I think we used to go through this. We had the uh, youth, the teenagers, whatever, 20-year-olds out at the Hartmans, and I used to go through this little timeline, and, and actually uh, it kind of helps you pinpoint things and get a remembrance on it. So I wrote the dates out so you wouldn't have to watch me do all of that. But the year 2000, if you can just remember things this way, roughly 2000, we have Abraham, the first Jew, called out of Ur of Chaldees. He has Isaac and Jacob for his sons, right? Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons, Joseph, goes down into Egypt. Through circumstances, he's raised up to be second in command next to Pharaoh. That's the only place there's food. He predicted there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And oh, that we could do that today. But anyways, so he goes down there, and that's the only place there's food. Jacob takes him and all of his sons. They move on down to Egypt. And so they're there for hundreds of years, and finally God, according to the promise he'd given Abraham, delivers them. And here for another round number, it's really more like 1,426, but around 1,500 we have the Exodus. The children of Israel, they're taken out of the land, and eventually... Joshua brings them into the promised land, okay? And they're in there for a period of time. They're served by judges for hundreds of years. And then God, through Samuel, he raises up Saul, who had a bad heart. Then came David, who had a good heart. And after that was Solomon, who had a mixed heart. And so that's what you have right here. You've got the reigns of David and Solomon here. And so Solomon, because of his disobedience, God takes the kingdom. He says, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. And so he has a son, Rehoboam, who decides he's not going to treat everybody real nice. And they're like, the ten northern tribes said, then we don't want you to be our king. We're going to get our own king. And so like I heard a man say, to make it easy, God gave the name of the king and the northern ten tribes, Rehoboam. So you got Jeroboam and Rehoboam. That makes it easy not to get him confused, right? But Rehoboam takes over the northern ten tribes. There's never a good king in the northern ten tribes, never. Now, Judah had some good kings. So finally, God sends prophets to warn them to turn back to me. You have to obey my law, keep my covenant, have a heart for me. The people refused. And finally, in 722, Israel, the northern ten tribes, goes into captivity. And Assyria is then ruling the world, and they take them away. So Judah, because of some good kings and some good influence, their judgment is delayed. But we know in the year 586, Judah goes into captivity. And who takes them away? Babylon. They're now ruling the world. So here they are in captivity. But God has promised, I will bring my people back if they'll seek me. So 
What happens is around 539, Persia is now the world ruler. All right, so Babylon's dethroned. We have Persia with the king Cyrus prophesied by name by Isaiah that he would send his people back hundreds of years before it ever happened. And so this, we have the first group returns in 539, and they're headed up by Mr. Zerubbabel. You've heard of his name. All right, so under Zerubbabel, they began to rebuild the temple, and then the enemies had it stop, came to a stop, and then finally they were able to finish it. All right, they got the temple finished. So in 558, what we have here is the second return of the remnant. And this is headed up by Ezra. And Ezra is wanting to bring reform. He's wanting to get the people. His emphasis is on the law, the word. Let's get back to the word and serving the Lord. Then we have 445, we have a third group coming. And this is who we just heard about. And this is headed up by Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, the walls had never been built. And that is his deal. So just to give you that timeline, in around 400, this is about the end of God speaking to the nation of Israel. 400, around that time, we have the book of Nehemiah and Malachi written. And after Malachi, we've got silence for 400 years until God sends the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where we're at right here. The third return, the remnant coming back. And that's where we're at with Nehemiah. And so the story of Nehemiah is simple. So look in chapter 1, verse 3. It says there, The wall of Jerusalem also is broken, and the gates are burned with fire. And then in 2.17, it says this, then I said unto them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And look what he says, come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we be no more a reproach. And if you just turn back quickly to chapter 6, verse 15, and it says this, so the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month Elul. In 52 days, they put that wall up. So the story of Nehemiah is a story about a man who began and continued and finished a building ministry that God gave him. And I would ask you, so what relevance does that have for us today? And let me remind you of this, no matter where you read in the Bible, God says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture, and that's mainly right there, he's, he didn't have a New Testament yet, so he's talking about the Old Testament, all scripture is God-breathed, and all Scripture, he says, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, telling us how we should live, that the man of God or woman might be complete, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. So we can get something out of Nehemiah, believe me, and I believe we will. So he's going to give us principles to apply to God's work of building, whether it's in our personal lives, we're under construction. And Peter tells us in his epistle that we are living stones being built up 
as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so all of us want to grow in our spiritual walk with the Lord, don't we? And Nehemiah is going to tell us how. Or what about the bigger picture, our church here, building up the body of Christ that we have right here. If you would put something in Nehemiah and turn back to, I want us to look at this, Ephesians 4. Principles of building. And look in verses 15 to 16. In Ephesians 4, 15, it says, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted or held together by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying, or that word is building up of itself in love. And so if you carefully read that verse, there's a lot compacted right into verse 16. But look especially, it says, that which every joint supplies. Every joint, that's me and you, that's every individual that is a part of this church has a responsibility and something to supply to the growth of this body. You know, you're in chapter 4 and verse 7. Look what it says, but unto every one of us, there's no exception there, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And it's talking there about gifts we have for the body here. And so when you exercise the gift that God has given you, and believe me, if you're part of the church, God has given you one. That's what he's just said. That's what we've just read. Then when you exercise that gift, it will help our body to grow in love. Now listen to the NLT. I'm not big on the NLT, but I think it helps make sense of verse 4, chapter 4, 16, we just read. Listen to what it says. It says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now, that's not a translation. That's somebody's interpretation in a sense it's a translation. But I think that's really catching the essence of what that verse is saying. Let me read it again. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. And as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The idea we're getting at is that we want to build our own lives, our ministries, and our church into something that will stand and endure and that God will bless. Amen? Because when we're all doing our part, that says they're a habitation of the Spirit. I mean, that blesses all of us, doesn't it? When we can sense God's presence here and moving amongst us. And so that's what we're after. That's what I'm trying to say right here, right? And so if you want to build anything, it doesn't matter what it is. This is just goes without saying. If the foundation is not strong and secure, then what's going to happen? The whole building, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole building is going to eventually topple. And that's true of our church, a ministry we may think we have, or our own personal walk with the Lord. So the question I want to raise, and that I think is answered here, is that we should ask ourselves, so how are the foundations laid in any work of God? Whether it's the church, a ministry, your personal life, whether in or out of the church. 
because Nehemiah, I don't believe he didn't start building these walls without a foundation, but I'm not talking about a foundation of cement and block. I'm talking about a spiritual foundation. And that's what we want to look at today. So if you turn back to Nehemiah, and the first principle I believe we see here in chapter one is that building begins with the individual begins with the individual. And so look there at verse 1. It says, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Kislu in the 20th year, he's in Shushan, the palace, the Persian palace. And so that is the equivalent of being in the White House in Washington, D.C. It's the equivalent in that day. But what's he doing there? What's Nehemiah doing there? Well, t verse 11 that we read earlier tells us. Look at the very end of verse 11. He says, I was the king's cupbearer. Now listen, being the king's cupbearer, that's not the same as being a glorified butler. <laughs> because the cupbearer's job was to test all of the king's food and drink for poison. So he'd eat some of the food and sip a little bit of the wine and they'd watch him. And if he didn't keel over in a few minutes or a little bit, then everything's kosher. The king can eat. Well, that was his main job, right? He had to be a trusted person. The cupbearer was. He's at every meal that the king is at, right? So he became, traditionally, and, and you read records of these cupbearers, they became close advisors to the king. And they had a lot of influence. And he would be the one that would have the king's signet ring. And he was the chief financial officer for the king. So the point I'm trying to make with saying all of this is, Nehemiah was a very important person in Persia. He had a job that a lot of people would have envied. I don't know about testing, seeing him for poison, but it might have been a little dangerous. But he had a lot of influence, and he was well taken care of. And here's the thing we need to see. Yet, even though Nehemiah had this cushy job in the palace, what we need to see is he had a heart for the cause of God and for the welfare of God's people. And that is key. That's the key point we're going to make to there. He had a heart for the cause of God and for the welfare of God's people. And so look in verse 2. It says that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And so his brother comes back, and some other Jews come back for Jerusalem. And he asked them, hey, how's everything going? How's the condition of the city? But notice something here. He had to ask them. They weren't the ones coming and telling him. It says right there, and I asked in verse 2. I asked them. Well, verse 3, they go on. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province, they're in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And they're telling them, hey, Nehemiah, you're asking. We're going to tell you how things are. They're bad. The people are in great affliction. That means they're in distress and misery is what that word means. And it says they're being reproached. Reproached. All the people living around them are treating them with disgrace and contempt and scorn and they're like not only that but the wall is broken down and the gates are lying in ashes but here's the thing they're just reporting they're just giving him a report it's like well here's a report that's all we get from them but look at nehemiah's reaction 
Look at his reaction in verse 4. He hears this report that probably was given in a matter-of-fact way or whatever. And it says in verse 4, And it came to pass when I, Nehemiah, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah hears this report about the cause of God and the state of God's people. It says he is greatly moved. I mean, it stirred him to the depths of his soul. I get that news. It's like I had, he had to sit down. You know, people will say that. I got some news for you. Maybe you ought to sit down. It just hit him in the gut. I sat down and I wept and I mourned. And not for just a few minutes either. What does it say there? How long did he do that for? It says four days. For days. And not only that, it says he fasted and prayed. So he's concerned about the glory of God. He wants to know, how is Jerusalem, the city of my God, how is that city doing? But he's even more concerned about God's people. How is the remnant that returned doing? And when he gets a bad report, he is overwhelmed with grief that God's people are not doing well. They're distressed. They're in reproach. It bothers him. And that is how ministry is birthed. The first step in establishing a foundation for a building is what we're talking about. Individuals become aware of a need and it moves them. And our great example of this is in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read in Matthew 9 and Mark 6, we read this. I kind of combined them both here, this part. And Jesus, when he came out, it says he saw much people and was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And so why does it say Jesus was moved with compassion towards these people? It says because they fainted. Now, to us in America, we're not King James 1611, that sounds like they're ready to pass out. But you know what that word means? It's the same thing Nehemiah found out about the people of God in his day. That word fainted means distressed, dejected, weary, beat down by life and the devil. That's what was going on, and Jesus sees that, and it says it moved his heart, just like Nehemiah's heart was moved. It says Jesus looks out on that crowd and sees these people dejected and beat down by life, and it says he was moved with compassion. That's the same thing we saw with Nehemiah. And so he met that need. And how did he do it? Well, in Mark's account, it says he began to teach them many things. <laughs> because that's the foremost thing people need, right? We're back to you shall know the truth. It has to be preached. And the truth will make you free. It'll bring you out of that hole you're in. But listen, he's just one man, isn't he? So interestingly enough, in Matthew's account, after he says, as sheep having no shepherd, it doesn't say there that he began to teach. You know what it says there? Different than Mark? He tells his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest 
that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So, hey, he sees this need and he recognizes. But this is more than one man can cover, right? We need others to help teach, to do the same thing. So he encourages prayer to be made for others to catch the same vision that he had to meet this need. That's what the prayer is. You know, both George Mueller, everybody knows about George Mueller had his orphan homes, but not too many people know, so did Charles Spurgeon. He, had, he, had an, he supported orphanages in a big way. Everybody just knows about Spurgeon being a great preacher. But how did those ministries, those orphan ministries, those men begin? How were they birthed? They had a terrible orphan problem in England at the time, and these men, they saw the need there. They saw this need, and they were moved. It moved them to the depths of their being. And it set them both to prayer, and God birthed the orphan ministries that came out of both their, and, and Mueller in a big way. But here's what we want to see, though. The concern began how? One individual was moved, not with the group. So the great need gripped, a great need gripped the heart of one man. In the case of Nehemiah, in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ we talked about, in the case of George Mueller and Charles Spurgeon, they didn't wait for the group to catch the vision. God used them to move the hearts of others. They didn't wait. And one of the greatest revivals this country has ever seen, not too many people know about it, but it was the revival of 1857 to 1858. It began because one man had a burden on his heart. He lived in New York City, and he's seeing all the sin and corruption around him and people not caring. They're all caught up. Things were going well at that time. All caught up in their wealth, kind of like today. The man's name was Jeremiah Lanfear, and he was a city missionary in New York City. And so he made an announcement, posted a poster somewhere. There's going to be a prayer meeting at noon on a small church on Fulton Street in New York City. And guess what? They're just a hand him and just a couple other people came there at first. That's it. But God had put it on his heart. He was going to pray regardless, right? And then there had a financial panic. That meeting swelled to several hundred, word got out somehow, I don't know exactly how, swelled to several hundred. Then two more prayer, noon prayer meetings were started in New York City, then one in Philadelphia. And so the newspapers get wind of this, and they start publishing reports that there is this great religious awakening taking place at these prayer meetings. And all of a sudden, prayer meetings sprang up, listen to this, in Boston, Louisville, Chicago, New Orleans, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Nashville, Mobile, Alabama, and Charleston. And every one of these prayer meetings were packed. Every one of them were packed. The revival spread to college campuses. Prayer meetings sprang up on college campuses. I won't name all of those. And it, during this period of time, this two-year period of time, a half a million people that's a lot of people because the population wasn't as big back then as it is now. A half a million people joined Protestant churches in America at that time. And that's the only revival America's known that was truly a national revival and not just an isolated to a small section. It was a national revival. It influenced everywhere. And the point is, 
God moved on this nation through the burden of one man. It didn't wait for everybody else to get on board. One man. And you're saying to yourself, well, I keep hearing everybody has a gift in the body, but I don't know what mine is. You're saying to yourself, I just don't know. I wouldn't know where to begin. Well, let me suggest this. Are you aware of any needs in this church or out of this church? Because that is how I'm saying a gift is born and made aware of. So a great Christian man, Oswald Chambers, said this. He says, the need is not the call, but is the occasion of the call. What he's saying is there are a ton of needs out here in our church and out of our church. Nobody has the capability or the energy to meet them all. It's impossible, right? No one can do that. But here, if you have a renewed heart, you should be moved by the needs that you are aware of in our church or out of our church. So I've quoted this several times here lately, but we'll quote it again. In 1 John, he says, Hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, he says, how dwells the love of God in him? I think that's where the ministry God has for you will begin there. And then it's going to be accompanied by a little nudge by the Holy Spirit to move you into it. And we see that in Nehemiah's life here. So the concern for the children of Israel led them to ask about their well-being. In verse 2, he says, I asked him concerning the Jews. He's concerned. And that produces what? When he hears the report and finds out, it produces a burden on his heart. That's what we have in verse 4. And I came to pass when I heard, when I heard the report, these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven fasted and prayed was his first reaction to that burden. And then, that happens. What's the next step with Nehemiah? God placed it in his heart what he wanted him to do. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 12. Look what it says. And I arose in the night and some few men with me, and neither I told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. So he sees the need. He's burdened by the people. And he begins to fast and pray many days over this situation. And then God puts it in his heart what to do. Doesn't tell anybody else. God put it in his heart what to do. And when God puts it in your heart, he will open the doors in his time and his way. We're not going to do that. We can do it, but it's just going to make a mess of things. So here's the question I would ask. Are we concerned about the needs that we see in the church? And I can always add, out of the church. Just add that on there if I don't say it, if I forget to say that, right? So are we asking God, like Nehemiah did? All Scripture is given us to show us how we should live a godly life, instruct us in righteousness. Isn't that what he did? He's saying, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? And are we showing that, how we can meet a need, praying that God will show us a need we can meet? Because listen, certain people, and we all know this is true, certain people are easy to help. 
Certain people are easy to help than others. And Paul calls them the comely parts, the more presentable, the more prominent, the more graceful ones. If you would, once again, put something there in Nehemiah and turn to 1 Corinthians 12, if you would, please. Beginning in verse 18, look what it says here. It says, now God has set the members, every one of them, in the body. And we didn't choose to get here, as Brother Hamilton used to say, I agree, as it pleased him, if you're a member of this body. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now we are many members, but yet one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be what? More feeble. They are the necessary ones, he says. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Because he says our comely parts, those presentable, prominent parts, what do they have? They have no need. And we're talking about meeting needs, aren't we? But God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Why? Verse 25, that there should be no division in the body. And look what it says, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Can I hear an amen? Amen. We should all care. It doesn't matter who the person is. We should have the same care for them. And if we see a need, doesn't matter who it is. We should be more than willing to meet it. Ask God to show us how we can meet it. That's how things are going to work. Not just the ones that are the comely parts. I only want to minister, Lord, to the comely parts. The ones I like. The ones I'm around all the time. That's not what it says there. So I'm saying as we reach out to meet the needs that we see in God's put in our hearts, we'll discover our ministry, how we build up the body of Christ. Wherever we see walls broken down, it will be on our burden on our heart to build them up, to fix them. So you're seeking the welfare of the church, and you're saying, hey, Lord, we need a word of encouragement today, and you're praying ahead of time, praying for God to give a word of prophecy Maybe not from you, maybe from anyone, right? To encourage some saint. You're impressed to visit a widow or an orphan, and how can I help you? Say, I'm going to go visit somebody or put somebody on your heart when you're praying. And you know a brother or sister is lonely? Invite them over for dinner. Hey, come dine with us. You see someone that's dejected, and they're like Nehemiah, they can't help putting it on their face, right? Ask God to give you a word or someone an encouragement for them and so on and so forth. And where do I get that from? Where am I getting all that from? All right. You're in 1 Corinthians. Turn to Romans 12, please. Look what it says there. Romans 12, verse 4. It says, For as we have many members in one body, well, all members, they don't have the same office, the same ministry, the same gifts. That's what he's saying. So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. And look what he says, verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. It's different for everybody. It's grace. It's not something we're dreaming up or working up. God's given us grace to have a gift for ministry. And he says, well, whether it's prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. 
or ministry service, let us wait on our serving, our ministry, or he that teaches on teaching, he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives. So that's a ministry, isn't it? Let him do it with simplicity. He that rules with diligence and he that shows mercy, don't do it grudgingly, with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. That's how it's going to work. You see needs in the body, you see needs in the community. Heroin addicts dying, right? And God puts it on your heart to join. We got some people already. God put it on their heart to minister to those. And it could be, I don't think you guys got too much help, Jake. No, they don't have too much help. Or nothing else. You can pray for them. Or you're saying, man, I've always had it in my heart. I want to be a, a missionary. But I got a family here, and I, there's no way I can travel overseas. And I, I'm too old. I am. I'm too old to learn a, a foreign language. Well, guess what? You can just go down to U of L and start your missionary journey right there because there are groups there I know that they minister to foreign students who they get saved and they take the gospel back to their foreign lands and you've done missionary work just to give you a few examples or start your own but the key to this first principle I want to see is that we'll see a need and God will make that a burden on our heart we will be moved individually that doesn't mean it couldn't be more than one person. That's not what I'm saying. But you understand what I am saying? <laughs> Praise the Lord. And so the next foundation, go back to Nehemiah. But leave something in Romans 12 because I'm going to come right back to that. So the next part of the foundation is the principle of prayer. So what should be our first response when we see a need and we recognize it? A lot of people's first response is, let's fix it. They're doers. <laughs> And Nehemiah was that way. Nehemiah was somebody, man, he's ready to jump in with both feet. But is that what he did? Because too often that is the response. People think they have a ministry, they get a burden on their heart, and they're running. They're running to get something going, and they haven't spent time in prayer. And I would add much prayer, depending. I mean, if your brother's broken down on the side of the road, you know, you don't need to go praying fast for days to decide whether you want to help him or not. So we're not saying that. But Nehemiah's first response was what? It was to go to the Lord in prayer. He laid his burden before the Lord. And I liked what one man said. As the concern gripped Nehemiah, Nehemiah gripped God. I thought that was good. As the concern gripped Nehemiah, Nehemiah gripped God. And so look at his prayer. Look at this prayer that he prays beginning in verse 5. And look how he starts it off. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He acknowledges first, and we've talked about this before, and it's in our Lord's Prayer. You don't just jump into having your needs. It's our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's what he's doing here. He acknowledges who he is. When it says Lord, O Lord, God of heaven, that Lord is Yahweh, the great I am. When he appeared to Moses and asked what his name was, he says, my name is I am that I am. And you go tell the children of Israel, Moses, that I am has sent you. I mean, if you read that in Exodus 3, he says, who is this I am? Not just God just is like he's some essence. He says, no, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And what he's saying by that, he is the all-sufficient God who is ready to meet any need. He's not going anywhere, and he can meet any need. The living God that can meet any need that might arise. And he goes on to say the God of heaven. And by that, he's saying the God of heaven, he is the one that controls all events in heaven and in earth. And so when you do that, when we go to the Lord, we see a great need. The need can look so great, we've got to put things in perspective. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, you are the Lord God of heaven. It puts things in perspective. So he prays to the king. Look over in 2.4 here. When he's before the king, he uses this expression again. And the king said unto me, what do you make a request? And here, this had to be a quick prayer Nehemiah made. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. In other words, this king who can take my head off because I'm asking him something I really probably shouldn't be, he's saying, I'm going to the God of heaven that can control this king's heart. Proverbs 21. And so I'm sure Nehemiah's sitting there. I'm sure his lips didn't move, but inside it says he prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> Before I answer that question, Lord, I need you to intervene and help me here. So whether it's to the God in heaven or look over in verse 20, his enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're threatening him. Look at verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Gishon the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us that we're going to build a wall. And they said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? And then answered I them and said unto them, how did he answer him? He says, the God of heaven. He will prosper us. He's in control of all things. You all are not going to put me in fear. God's in control of everything. He will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And after that, after verse 5 through verses 6 to 7, Nehemiah prays a prayer of commitment. Part of that prayer is commitment and confession. And what we need to see there is he's consecrating himself. Look what he says in verse 6. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that you can hear the prayer of thy servant. He's saying, I am your servant. I may serve the king, but what is he in comparison to you, the great and terrible Lord of it all. He's saying, I'm your servant, and I'm dedicated to you. I'm consecrating myself to you. And then he goes on to confess the sins of Israel and his own personal sins. What's he doing in all of that? He's dedicating himself as a clean vessel, consecrated for the Lord's use. And listen, that is vital the vital first step in prayer about ministry. So we can get busy about doing ministry, but if we have skipped that step, what I'm saying here is this step of consecration, you will fail. It won't work. Everybody put something in Romans 12. Go back there, please. And here we have it right here in Romans 12. So we read verses 4 through 10, but what comes before verses 4 through 10, verses 1 and 2, right? <laughs> Look what it says, verse 1. I beg you, Paul says, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. He says that is your reasonable worship or service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
He's saying that is what you have to do that you may prove or know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. If you don't have your all on the altar, as we've heard, and you're not ready for ministry of any sort, that has got to be the first thing you do, the first thing in prayer. You see a need in your prayer, you've got to have your all on the altar. Or you'll never clearly see. And I would also add, you won't have power in your ministry. It's got to be prayer involved. You got this ministry to do? It's not just jumping out and doing it. It may be legitimate, but you've got to get before the Lord. Consecrate yourself. Spend time in prayer about whatever this ministry you think you have is. And listen, we clearly see that in the book of Acts. So Jesus didn't tell his disciples, I mean, man, there's all kinds of needs. He already said the harvest is plenteous. There's all kinds of needs he's seeing out there, sheep with no shepherd. But he didn't say, look at all those needs of the world in front of you, the lost, the sick, the demon-possessed, and just go tackle that problem with gusto. We know, is that what he told them to do? <laughs> His word to them was, pray. Wait for the promise of the Father, because you need to receive my power to be effective witnesses and to do ministry. And listen, they obeyed him, didn't they? They didn't go rushing out. They got before God 10 days in prayer. And I think he's laying their lives bare. They're dealing with stuff during that time. God's getting them ready for that outpouring to come on them. And then when the power of God does come on them, guess what's happening? Bam! Read the rest of the book of Acts. Needs are being met. Lives are being set free. It's the Holy Spirit. It's never us anyways, right? And so we need his presence and power in our lives. And that comes through consecration. We need a call back to consecration. Starting here, all of us. Amen? I mean, that's what we need. A call back to consecration. And also in the book of Acts, when you look at Acts 13, the church of Antioch, Paul and the elders, look, they're seeing the, there's a great need out here. These Gentiles, they're perishing, and they were. They were perishing. Without hearing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that message coming to them, they're perishing every day. A great need in front of him. But hey, they didn't just get, hey, boys, we see this need out there. We've got the message. Paul had the message. Jesus gave it to him personally. <laughs> He's here with the church in Antioch. He didn't say, let's form a committee and let's start making some plans on how we're strategically going to evangelize the world. Is that what they did? If you read in Acts 13, it says they got together and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit then gave them direction and said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work, the ministry, whereunto I have called them. And I'm saying that is how New Testament missions is done. It's right there. The need is seen and then prayer and fasting is offered. And then God speaks, gives directions. And you know what? This, to me, is even more amazing. That wasn't the end of it. Because he told them, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry. That wasn't the end of it. You know what they did? They're like, these men need to be empowered even more. It says they went on and prayed and fasted more. And then laid their hands on them and sent them out. Prayed and fasted more after God had already said, these are the two, I'm going to send them out. All right, well, we're going to pray and fast because this is a dangerous, big endeavor you all are taking. Never been done before. 
You need God's anointing, blessing, and power on your lives. And that's how we have to approach things. If we're going to do it biblically, and we can do it the way everyone else does it, I guess, but if we're going to do things biblically, I'd say there it is. So back to Mr. Nehemiah, please. Another element to his prayer is he has dogged persistence. He is persistent in prayer. So once Nehemiah had this burden, he constantly prayed. Look in verse 6, in the middle of verse 6. He says, hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now. He says, day and night. Now let me ask you a question. How many days do you think that Nehemiah prayed? How many days do you think he prayed? You know, I didn't know this until I started studying this out, but just a superficial reading, I would say, it would lead you to think that when Nehemiah gets the news, he mourns and fasts for several days, and then he says this long prayer we have here from verses 5 through 11 before the Lord. Then the next day he goes in before the king as the cupbearer, and the king says, what do you want, da-da-da, and God answers that prayer. Okay. Well, here's where it helps to know a little bit of the background that's going on here. So the first verse of chapter 1 tells us something here. Now, a lot of times we skip over this stuff, but it says the words of Nehemiah, it came to pass in the month of Kislu. Okay, so there's a starting point. The month of Kislu is when this all happens. That is when Nehemiah gets the report and mourns and begins to start fasting and praying. And then when we look in chapter 2, verse 1, Look what it says there. It came to pass in the month Nisan. Not what you drive, the month Nisan. So what does that tell us? Do you know how many days there were between Kislu and Nisan? 100 days. Over three months. So Nehemiah, when it says he prayed day and night, he didn't just pray day and night for a couple days. He prayed about this whole ministry. And like we said, he's a man that likes action, that likes to jump in there and get things done. But he's primarily, we're seeing here, he is a man of prayer. 100 days before the Lord, praying about this, fasting about this, this ministry, going and building these walls. And look what it says in 11b. He says, this is what he prayed every day. Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant, this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man speaking of the king so every day he's praying with expectation though he didn't know when it was going to happen did he you know he's not purposely going before the king and saying well you know i think today maybe i'll try this approach i'm going to look as miserable as i can and see if i get a reaction out of him that's not what he did he, he didn't mean to do that i mean everybody was supposed to be back in that day you went into the courts the king's presence Everyone's supposed to be happy and smiling. And I'm sure that's typically what he did. But that burden on his heart, he didn't know it. Have you ever had a burden on your heart and you don't realize it, but your wife picks it up? What's going on with you? Well, I didn't think I'd shown anything. <laughs> well, that's what kind of, I believe, happened here. But it was all in God's timing. 100 days he's fasting and praying. Waiting for God to act today. Maybe today is the day he would have thought every day. But here's the deal. He didn't get ahead of God, did he? He waited on the Lord to open the doors. Because Nehemiah, unlike us a lot of times, he wasn't trusting in his ability, his wisdom, or the king's mood. He was just totally submitting, submissive and trusting in God's direction for God to work things out. 
Now, I think all of what I said up to this point about God bringing a person to a point of consecration and placing a need and burden on him and opening up a door for ministry can be seen in the life and ministry of David Wilkerson. I don't know how many of you have read The Cross and the Switchblade. If you haven't read it, I would suggest you do. It's a great book to read, even though it was written back in the 60s. But David Wilkerson, he was spirit-filled. His grandfather, father, they were praying men and spirit-filled men. But he's just a country preacher with a little country church in rural Pennsylvania. And at first, he's happy to have it. The church was growing there. But all of a sudden, he's realizing things are dry for him. Things just, he's like, is this all there is, Lord, to life in the spirit? Must be more to this. So he used to watch TV late at night. <laughs> he watched the late show. And he says he's watching this late show show. Maybe some of you do. And he's saying, this is the dumbest thing. What am I watching this for? And he starts getting convicted about that. God speaking, you could use your time better if you were praying. And so what he did is he sold his TV. And so the two hours that he would spend watching the late show, he started spending two hours every night in prayer to God. That's what he did. For a long time, he did that. Two hours in prayer. Dedicated himself and consecrated himself afresh to the Lord. That's what David Wilkerson did. And then one night after he was praying, he notices a Life magazine laying there. And here's a picture of seven teenage boys in New York City. They're on trial for a heinous murder. Teenage boys. And he sees the face of one of those boys. And he would say it was a supernatural thing. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm assuming it was. It broke him down. He sees this need. He starts weeping. He can't help it, he says. And then during that time, God speaks to him that night, and he says, I want you to go to New York City and help those boys. And David Wilkerson said when that impression came on his heart, he laughed out loud. He said, I've never been to New York City. I'm a country boy. I'll be like a fish out of water if I went there. But he couldn't get away from that impression as hard as he tried. God had laid that burden. It's that little nudge of the Holy Spirit. And so we all got to get the book because I'm not going to go through the whole story. I've gone through as much as I want to go through there to make my point. But here, he gets there, and he's broken when he gets to that city, and he sees what's going on. He has a burden. He prays. And next thing you know, God opens the doors up. It's a neat book to read, but he's opened the door up to ministering to these street gangs, these heroin addicts that he is praying for, praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they're staying off of. We got a ministry. Nikki Cruz came out of that. And his teen challenge. So the point is, what we see there. It all began with one person and God dealing with him. Let God speak to you. Forget about everybody else. Speaking to him, speaking to us, speaking to me, speaking to you about our consecration to the Lord and our prayer life. That's what Wilkerson saw. It's Romans 12.1. He just laid himself on the altar. God, do with me what you want to. Send me here. People thought he was crazy. He's like, I can't help it. It's what God's put on my heart. And I think he was vindicated. God vindicated him. And that led to God opening up his ministry. And I heard him give this message. He was broken heart. This is at the age of 73, 74. I think he died at age 75. He said after 50 years of ministry, he's looking back. And he's saying there has nothing that I've done, nothing I have done has ever stood and amounted to anything that wasn't birthed 
in fasting, in prayer, and in tears. Wilkerson's saying that, is that's an old, he goes, I'm not trying to impress anybody. And I mean, at 75, you quit trying to impress people, I'd say. But he said, that was just a burden on his heart. So what about us? What about me? What about you? Do we want to see our church build up as a living temple inhabited by the Spirit of God? I really believe we do. And so it's going to start with each one of us. So corporately we'll come together, right? Corporately we'll help each other. But it's got to start with each of us dealing with ourselves individually. We have to have, as Nehemiah did, a heart for the cause of God and a heart for the welfare of his people. We have to let needs that we're aware of move us. Now, we can't work up tears, can we? But we can be moved with compassion, can't we, to meet that need. And it should move us to start praying and at times fasting for people. Some serious needs going on here. And Lord, I see this brother or sister is struggling. How can I help or minister to them? I'm dedicating myself to pray for them. That is the first step we should take. But we can't wait for others. We've got to do it whether it seems like anybody else is doing it or not. Because Nehemiah, we're back to his story, he seemed to be the only one who was truly moved by what was going on in Jerusalem. With Jerusalem and God's people. He seemed like he was the only one. But he wasn't going to wait. He didn't wait. And yet, God used the burden and prayers of that one man. One man, he changed the king's heart and brought others. They caught the vision with him, brought it back to build up again the walls of the city of God. And that is how the foundation is laid for a strong church and a successful ministry. From the book of Nehemiah. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'll speak to every individual, all of us here, Lord, that, that you'll bring us back to a consecration to you, Lord, where we truly do have our lives dedicated to you and, and to be your servants and willing to do whatever you show us, Lord, and, and that we'll be aware of and conscious and looking for needs in and out of our body that we can meet, that we can help, that you give us that little nudge that that's what you specifically want us to deal with. And, I just ask you'll show us all of that, Lord, and, and cause all of us to be willing to meet our individual responsibility to supply what this body needs because we're part of it. Many members, but one body. And that we, Lord, I just ask that our church will look out for the welfare of every member of this body, the comely and the uncomely. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you stand to your feet. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary. 
Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. 